This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Tracy Boomgard as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. South Africa's constitutional court delivers a scathing judgment in the public protectable Suwim Kobani's bid to avoid paying a punitive cost order from the High Court. DRC president takes over the leadership of the response team to the Ebola virus disease. In economics, oil prices surge after Iran seized a British tanker in the Gulf and Libya stopped production at a key oil terminal on Friday. And in sport, the Portfolio Committee on Sports, Arts and Culture urges sponsors to reward South African netball team following their performance at the 2019 World Cup. Hello Tracy, how are you? I'm very well in you, Samora. Very well. It's the start of a new week. Uh, did you have a good weekend? I did. Okay, that's good. Always uh, happy to hear when people have had a good weekend. And of course, you can let us know how yours was. Uh, info at channelafrica.co.za is the email address. Plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven for WhatsApp and at Channel Africa One on Twitter. But right now, let's cross on over to the news desk. Here is Tracy Boomgard with your latest news bulletin. Al-Shabaab says carried out the attack in the Somali capital Mogadishu early this morning. Several people were killed when a car bomb was detonated near the airport in the city. A loud blast was followed by gunfire. Zimbabwean Vice President Constantine Chiwenga has been flown to China to receive medical treatment. He had re- been receiving treatment in a South African hospital earlier this month. The Zimbabwean government has not disclosed Chiwenga's illness or his current state of being. Sophie McQuenna reports. In a statement, the Zimbabwe government says that the medical experts from South Africa, India and now China will be attending to the Vice President Chiwenga. They say he will undergo further medical tests as part of his treatment. Chiwenga, a former military general, led the 2017 military operation which led to the resignation of President Robert Mugabe. Operation Restore Legacy, as it was called, saw the army taking over the capital city Harare and the state broadcaster. Chiwenga led the talks with Mugabe that convinced him to step down after 37 years. As the world marks five decades since the first moon landing, India has successfully launched its second moon mission. The country is attempting a controlled landing on the moon's surface, something only three countries have successfully done in the past, the US, Russia and China. Nihapunia has more from New Delhi in India. India's space and research organization has successfully launched the country's second lunar mission, which will aim to land on the moon's southern pole in September. Chandrayaan-2, or its second moon vehicle, took off at 2.43 p.m. India time from the country's eastern coast. The launch had been delayed by a week due to a technical snag during the first liftoff attempt. This is India's most ambitious mission yet, in a bid to cement its position as a leading low-cost space power. Chandrayaan-2 will attempt to land near the lunar south pole, making India the first country to ever touch down here. The mission's aim will be to conduct studies on the presence of water on the southern pole. More than 7 million South Africans smoked cigarettes in 2015. This is according to the World Health Organization, which estimates that the number is unlikely to materially change by 2025. A number of alternatives to smoking, such as e-cigarettes and heated tobacco, are on the market today. Spokesperson of Philip Morris South Africa, a leading international tobacco company, Richard Haji, explains the different alternatives to smoking. There are two alternatives which are known. One is um, e-cigarettes. And e-cigarettes heat a liquid which contains nicotine to produce a vapor. 
The other is what's called heat, not burn tobacco. And a product like ICOS uh, is something that is this, so it, it will uh, um, heat tobacco to produce a vapor as well. And this will reduce the level of harmful chemicals by 95% compared to cigarettes. And finally, a ceremony has been held in Tanzania to mark 60 years since the discovery of the skull of what is believed to be the world's oldest man. Zinjanthropus, as he has been named, is thought to have lived 1.75 million years ago. His remains were found by archaeologists in 1959 in Tanzania's Olduvai Gorge, now dubbed the Cradle of Mankind. Experts say the finding changed the understanding of early human evolution. The teeth and skull fragments helped scientists to date the beginnings of humankind to about 2 million years ago and to verify that human evolution began in Africa and not Asia as was previously thought. I'll be back with headlines at half past five. This is Africa Digest. South African constitutional law expert Professor Pierre de Force says if the highest court in the land calls you a liar as the public protector, then you should resign. This follows the scathing judgment on Mkwebane's investigation into the South African Reserve Bank's apartheid-era bank corp bailout. Last week, the public protector released her findings into the, inf- uh, the investigations into President Cyril Ramaphosa's campaign. She found that the funding by Bosasa into his presidential campaign fundamentally and irretrievably flawed. She also found that the pres- president deliberately lied to parliament. Professor DeForce explains. Well, I haven't read the uh, judgment of the constitutional court yet, so I can't really comment on the details of the judgment. But it's clear that the court confirmed what the lower courts have already found and what many uh, people who have studied various other reports of the public protector have been arguing for the last two years. Okay, so talking about Ramaphosa, then the president, what do you make of the public protector's recent findings against uh, the president? Well, you know, on one hand, it looks to me that the finding that the president should have declared all income that he's campaigned to become president of the ANC, that that should be made public. I like that because I think that money plays too much of a role in our politics and in in, uh, political campaigns, also for elective leadership positions in parties. Whether the the relevant provisions of the code that the public quotes from to justify this, whether they actually apply to the president, I doubt it. So I suspect uh, the argument legally is flawed, although on a principled matter, I think it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good argument. The other question of money laundering, there the public protector's report is really impossible to understand because she quotes sections of the law dealing with corruption, and then she says that is about money laundering. They are not about money laundering. Money laundering is regulated by another law. She never quotes that law. She never says that money laundering allegations have merit. So that doesn't make any sense. It's going to be declared invalid and set aside by the court, I've no doubt. So then you don't think the courts will agree with her findings? You know, they might agree with some of the findings. For example, although the, the public protector also stuffed it up very badly by quoting or making up the wording for the code that she's relying on, to find that the president misled parliament. But you could maybe make an argument that he did mislead parliament, so maybe that one will stand. The other two, I can't imagine that the court will not set those parts of the report aside. Clearly, I mean, a lot of uh, shots being fired at the public protector. Then if we go back to the APSA bank uh, issue, Mm. uh, the court saying that she was not honest about her engagements during the investigation uh, or her model of investigation being flawed. And then, you know, President Cyril Ramaphosa now taking, uh, you know, the issue around her to court as well. Is she now going to still be viewed by the public as the public protector? Well, I can't speak on behalf of other people. I know that if the constitutional court, which is the highest court, makes a finding that you acted in bad faith, 
that you lied to the court and that you're incompetent. If possibly if it was me, I would have resigned as the public protector because I would have concluded that it is impossible to do my job. Because there's no coming back from the highest court of the country saying that you act in bad faith, you're dishonest. It's very difficult to believe, to trust somebody who is now objectively speaking a dishonest liar. So, so finally then, on uh, the public protectors now being uh, personally liable for some of the costs in her litigation against Reserve Bank and APSA, which uh, the North Gauteng uh, High Court judged uh, on, where would we, you know, I don't know, I suppose this is going to be speculation or, or looking forward in terms of what could be, where could she be getting these funds? Will she be able to, if this is really what she needs to do to be liable for the costs? So if I understand you correctly, maybe I missed the question there, but now there's no coming back from this. She will have to pay the 15% of the cost personally. I think that's about 900,000 rand. She will have to pay it from her own pocket. She can't use the public protector's money for that. That is one of the things I understand, and I've just started reading the judgment, and the minority judgment is one of the reasons why they ruled against, or why they would have not ruled for a cost order, is they said, that 900,000 rand is going to be a severe blow to the public protector, and that may be unfair. And that's Professor Pierre de Force, constitutional law expert, on the line talking to Asanda Beda. Cameroon's second largest employer, the Cameroon Development Corporation, CDC, which expands through the English-speaking regions of the Central African state, has been almost completely paralyzed by the separatist crisis rocking the state of Cameroon. The agriculture complex has not been able to pay its staff for a year, as production has dropped significantly. Only 900 tons of rubber out of the 4,000 tons targeted for the first half of 2019 has been produced. Moki Kinzek have visited CDC farm plantations and reports that people are yearning for life to return to normal. The village of Mianja used to be a banana production center in Cameroon's English-speaking southwest. Two years ago, 2,000 people lived here and many worked for the Cameroon Development Corporation's banana production unit. But these days, a visiting reporter sees only abandoned houses, empty schools and silent factories. Oliver Kogge worked at the Mianja Banana Factory, but says security threats forced them to shut down. Armed separatists attacked the factory in 2017, he says, killing four workers and wounding scores of others. This particular processing unit produces averagely 60 tons of banana daily. And after this attack, workers ceased. Workers escaped for their dear life. 560 workers were working in this particular section. In the course of stopping work, we have deprived 560 workers from employment. The Cameroon Development Corporation is the Central African country's second largest employer and runs banana, palm oil and rubber plantations. But the three-year conflict between Anglophone rebels and government troops has forced the CDC to close farms and factories across the Western English-speaking regions. CDC General Manager Franklin Goninger says more than half of his 20,000 workers, fearing attacks, refuse to work while the remainder work only part-time. We have virtually lost the banana plantations and we have to start with complete replanting. Revenue dropped to less than 50%. We are unable to meet up with our obligations to pay salaries and wages. We have been unable to meet up with our obligations to honor our social and fiscal commitment. Cameroon's Agriculture Minister Gabriel Mairobi says the government is negotiating with staff to resume work. He says the government will assure their safety and settle the past year of unpaid salaries. I would like to appreciate the willingness of all the workers to resume work. Uh, I can assure them that the government will take all the measures to pay the salary area and to give money so that the, the plantation and the factory will be back in activity. 
CDC General Manager Franklin Goninje. We tender regular reports to our supervisory ministry. And I must say it here with all appreciation that at the level of the hierarchy, all the efforts are being made to see how CDC can suffer less from this. The main problem is a problem of security. Every time I've reported to the Minister of Agriculture, he has not relented. Immediately has had the report, he has called the competent authorities in that domain. If I take the local administration, I've reported to the governor of the Southwest region. We report to the DOs. We report to the SDOs. They engage as much as they can engage. I said out of 11 estates, none of them is operating normally. And then there's a big question. Somebody who knows CDC would ask, yes, this is an Anglophone problem, but how come your estates that are in the Mongo division of the littoral region are affected? Reality is that they are affected. On the 23rd of this month, two soldiers were reported missing in Kompena Estate, two days after their corpses were found. I think we are facing a very, very serious problem. The conflict in Cameroon's English-speaking regions was sparked in 2016 by protests against discrimination from the country's French-speaking majority in education and the justice system. The government responded with a crackdown and armed separatists fought back. The rebels consider state-run companies such as the CDC and institutions such as schools legitimate targets. Last month, the Cameroon Employers Association said rebel fighters had transformed many CDC plantations into training grounds. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Limbe, Cameroon. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLeg to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The third annual Youth Academy has kicked off in Kigali, Rwanda, under the theme Youth Contribution to Prevent and Mitigate Electoral and Political Violence in African Countries. The Academy is hosted by the Department of Political Affairs of the African Union Commission and the Africa and West Asia Program of the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance in partnership with the African Governance Architecture Secretariat and the National Consultative Forum of Political Organizations in Rwanda. This year's Youth Academy has an objective to provide a platform for young politicians for them to reflect on and discuss the root causes of electoral and political violence in their respective countries amongst others. More from Ambassador Salah Hamad, head of African Governance Architecture Services within the African Union. The Youth Academy is an annual uh, program or event that is jointly organized between or by the African uh, Union Commission and it's a national idea and the main objective of it is to bring together uh, African youth from different parts of the continent uh, to discuss a specific uh, theme uh, or a specific issue related to our political processes. Uh, this year's uh, theme uh, is to discuss the youth contribution uh, to prevent and mitigate uh, political and violences in Africa. The program is taking place here in uh, Kigali, Rwanda, and we have a number of uh, youth, young men and women, uh, from many African countries. And uh, we began this program today and we'll course continue for the next uh, uh, four days. Can you just touch more on the theme? What inspired this year's theme? 
well, uh, Africa, as you know, the African Union has declared next year, 2020, the year of silencing the guns in Africa. So the idea is, hopefully, as of next year, there will not be more violence uh, or conflict in our beloved continent. So to prepare for that, and as of last year, uh, we began a series of dialogue and discussions over how the youth can uh, contribute to the mitigation and prevention of violence, whether it is political violence or a violence that is a result of any electoral processes. And why the youth? Uh, the answer is simple, simply because the youth are the majority of the African population. When we say the African youth, we are talking about 60 to 65 percent of the African 1 billion citizens. So therefore, since the youth are the majority, they must have a role to play uh, in preventing uh, conflicts and also in mitigating current conflicts and violence that are uh, happening in, uh, on our continent. But of course, the main purpose is to pave the way uh, for preventing more conflicts from happening in the future so we can achieve the goal of having an Africa that is peaceful, prosperous, and united. Now, the Academy will run until the 25th of July. What sort of issues will these young people be tackling over the next three days? Uh, we will basically dis- we'll be discussing uh, theories and practices. Uh, we will listen to the youth and listen to the experiences that they are bringing to the table from the different countries that they are representing, from the uh, African or uh, from African countries, member states. Uh, but also we will be able to share with them some of the information we have on how to respond and prevent, uh, how to prevent conflicts from happening, but also how to respond to violence and conflicts that are erupting as well. So uh, one of the methods that we'll be using as uh, one of the methodologies will be is to basically share information, but also listen to the best practices that they are bringing to the table as well. So we will be exchanging information with them as much as we also will be listening to the experiences that they will be sharing with us as well. And Ambassador, uh, why was it so important for the African Union and the two organizations that you are hosting this academy with to be involved and in particular with the focus on young people? This, uh, this academy is one of a number of other programs and activities that the African uh, Union developed in recent years. And we are partnering with idea with the international idea on this one in particular. Uh, but we have a number of other programs and activities collectively known as the African Union Youth Engagement Strategy. So the youth engagement strategy basically is to bring the African Union closer uh, to the African youth since they are the majority, uh, try to involve them in the African affairs, and also uh, to involve them in the affairs of their own countries at the national level and to make them uh, express themselves and also avail the platform for them to know what is going on at the continental level, at the regional level, as well as the national level. Uh, We hope with all of these programs together we'll be able to bring the youth to be more active uh, in the African Union affairs as well as uh, the affairs at the national level, simply as I mentioned earlier, because they are the majority uh, of the African population. And without the involvement of youth, we will not be able to build the Africa we want. That was Ambassador Salah Hamad, Head of African Governance Architecture Services within the African Union, on the line from Kigali in Rwanda, talking to Ntlantla Mashangu. Democratic Republic of Congo President Felix Tshisekedi has taken over the leadership of the response team to the Ebola virus disease. The decision has been made after the World Health Organization declared international emergency the disease that has claimed more than 1,700 lives in the eastern DRC in less than a year. Jean-Noel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The report against Ebola will be conducted by a team of experts headed by this country's main epidemiologist, Jean-Jacques Mouyembe, who is also the National Institute of Biomedical Research Director. But of course, the whole process is to be supervised by President Felix Tshisekedi. That's indeed what has been decided here last weekend after the World Health Organization declared the Ebola outbreak, an international emergency. And indeed, authorities here have said that the Democratic Republic 
Republic of Congo adheres to WHO recommendations to fight the epidemic hitting the east of this country. The report activities will be coordinated by a team of experts according to this communique read by this member of the presidential press, Jean-Pierre Kibambe. The report is to be done as from today under the direct supervision of the President of the Republic and indeed the technical secretariat responsibilities have been given to a team of experts and this team mission is to coordinate all the activities for the implementation of riposte strategies. The Ebola outbreak started in the North Kivu province's territory of Beni in August last year before spreading to Butembo in the same province and the Ituri province. The disease crossed even the borders to the neighboring Uganda. More than 1,700 people have already been killed by Ebola in less than a year. This analyst from the Sepromad University believes this is really an international emergency issue. According to Simplice Iale, prevention is really important and what's needed for repost here in the Democratic Republic of Congo is people with goodwill and commitment. It's emergency because thousands of people are dying for the same sickness. So we really need prevention. We really need funds to support the situation. And it's not only NGOs' commitment. Our government, they have to take into consideration the fact and uh, fight Ebola. So every Congolese and leaders, we have to, you know, to fight the situation. You know, it's that from Benin now, Goma, it is spread, so it's an emergency. The problem in Congo is people with a good will intention. The problem is someone who is capable to do it and is committed to do it. My problem is not nationalism or whatever people can say. We need to have competent people with integrity to self situations in all the sectors of life we need people who are committed so we need commitment meanwhile most of the democratic republic of congo's people have it difficult to understand why it has taken so long to eradicate this 10th ebola outbreak hitting the country the first ebola epidemic was reported in this country's province of equator in the 50s and has repeated there more than once this is the first time for the out break to be reported in the eastern province of North Kivu. What's difficult and even suspicious for many to understand here is the long time this one is taking to be eradicated. Kabwe Kabuya is a Congolese activist. How it can be possible to stop Ebola in uh, Equator and it is impossible to stop it at East. They are not right. I suspect that uh, it is dirty method to search the finance for dirty uh, NGO. How it can be possible to stop that disease somewhere and it can be impossible to stop it again somewhere else? It is impossible. It is impossible. Sometimes uh, those people who are coming from abroad, they are coming not to do the mission which they came to do, but they are doing many things. They are lying sometimes, yeah. They are lying sometimes. If Congolese are coordinating that uh, project of uh, Ebola to stop it, because there is some Congolese who are honest, they can give the good report instead to virtual reports. It's a week since the first case of Ebola was confirmed in Goma, which is the capital city of the North Kivu province. And indeed, people in the neighboring province of South Kivu are under serious panic, fearing the outbreak could spread to the Bukavu town. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. 1729 Central African Time. A quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so by sending us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us a message on Twitter. And whilst you're there, be sure to follow us uh, at Channel Africa one and you can also uh, send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. It's just shy of seventeen thirty right now. Let's cross on over to the news desk for the latest news headlines.
Thank you, Samora. The militant group Al-Shabaab says it carried out the attack in the Somali capital, Mogadishu, earlier this morning. Zimbabwean Vice President Konstantin Chiwenga has been flown to China to receive medical treatment. And as the world marks five decades since the first moon landing, India has successfully launched its second moon mission. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Solar panel parking lots are mushrooming around South Africa as businesses and residents increasingly resort to solar energy. Solar energy expert Sophia Nokia says the country is 30 years behind, but it's catching up to world trends. Companies such as Growth Point have invested over 100 million rand on roof and car park solar farms as businesses seek to reduce their reliance on the grid. Angela Bolowana spoke to some companies that are leading the trend and filed this report. Alexandra Ho is sustainability executive at retailer Masmad. His team has been working on a number of projects to make their stores energy efficient. Although they started with energy efficient lighting and air conditioning, their biggest project so far was installing solar panels in their parking lots. They have installed 1,475 such panels, producing 480 kilowatts of electricity at the parking lot of the macro store in Struben Valley, west of Johannesburg. This is just one of the seven stores running on their project. They are also planning to add two more such parking lots this year. Horses, the benefits include reduced electricity costs. So this, is, this plant produces um, up to about 70% of the store's daytime requirement. So, and about 30% of its overall usage. So remember that the store's got refrigeration plants um, and systems that run 24 hours. And the solar panels only produce electricity during the day. So they offset the majority of the store's daytime electricity consumption. Um, just to put it in, in, in context, so this is one of um, five sites that we have already up installed at macro sites. And we've also got two uh, installations at Builders Warehouse, our Builders Warehouse Boxburg store and our Builders Warehouse North Riding store. Collectively, we've produced 6 million kilowatt hours of green electricity since we started this project in 2016. Property investment company GrowthPoint has also jumped into the energy efficiency bandwagon. The company owns over 100 buildings across the country, many of which are shopping malls. They've invested over 100 million rent installing solar panels on the 17 of the 70 buildings they had identified to be solar energy efficient. The buildings include the Northgate and Brooklyn shopping malls. Rothbund's Verna van Artwerpen does not believe they will get off the grid completely. He believes an energy mix is still the best way to go. In the property space, uh, there will be a trend of people putting more solar onto to rooftop structures. And the main reason for that is... Um, you know, from a cost perspective, you know, they, they're creating a hedge against the electricity price that's currently escalating <clears throat> almost twice inflation. And um, but you know, from a from a country point of view, you know, renewable energy is one of the one of the energy sources, and that needs to be uh, you know within you know the the integrated resource plan where there's also other electricity sources that need to be incorporated. Suna Solar is a company that designs and builds solar power systems for homes and businesses. Its owner Sofia Norgia says they've had an uptake in the demand for solar energy solutions since the recent power blackouts that hit the country. Norgia says while many corporates are opting for roof and parking lot solar panels, there's been demand for solar energy solutions from residential properties as well. The panels have a 25 year warranty. You know, so inverters a bit less depending on what inverter technology is. Between 5 year, 12 year, you get warranties you can extend up to 20 years, 25 years. But the panels are have a 25 year warranty. You know, so if after 5 years it's paid off, then it's basically free electricity for the next 20 years in a way, you know. The West Bank FNB building in Fairlands, Johannesburg, remains one of the prominent single solar projects in the country. Although the bank refused to do an interview on the project, it's estimated that the more than 1,000 solar parking bays it installed at a cost of 60 million rent can generate over 1,800 kilowatt hours of energy. And that report was by Angela Bolowana. A Cape Town-based women's health startup has been named winner of the Apps for Africa competition in which local African entrepreneurs were vying for an app development package. 
This is called FemConnect, and the soon-to-be-launched app will allow women to access self-administered family planning methods digitally. Furthermore, the app will enable women to donate sanitary products to their local sanitary product distribution charity in their areas of choice. Jane Rabutata reports. Women in South Africa will soon be able to access contraceptives online thanks to an app called FemConnect. Asonele Kutu, the chief executive and founder of FemConnect, says the free app is aimed at empowering women to make decisions about the type of contraception right for their bodies, taking the barrier to easy access away. If you look at the landscape that we're dealing with currently, there's two kinds of women. There's a woman who goes through the public sector, which means going to the clinic and you have to wait for your contraceptives. But if you look at the kind of contraceptives that we have in our public clinics are not mostly self-administered except for the oral contraceptives, which are the pills. It's sometimes the implanons and sometimes the UID sterilization, the depot injection and so forth. And in order to get those, there's usually a long waiting time that you have to wait at the clinic. And we found that since last year, in July 2018, the government confirmed that in certain provinces, they do experience shortages of contraceptives, which means that if you go to a clinic and you wait for three hours and you realize that they don't have your injection, you are sitting at risk for the next two to three months because maybe you cannot afford to go the private route. The other kind of woman is the woman that goes through the private route. That means you first need to go to a private doctor and pay for a full doctor's consultation, whether you are sick or not. And after that, the doctor will only issue you with a prescription. The doctor will not give you any contraceptives. You will then need to take that prescription and go to your nearest pharmacy and then pay again to get your contraceptives on a monthly basis if your prescription says three months or six months. The barrier between these two or the difference here is that one has easy access to self-administered contraceptives, but that route is too expensive. And the other one does also have easy access, but there's a long waiting period. So how do we create something that bridges this gap and that enables us as women to get contraceptives conveniently and for us to be able to get these at the comfort either of our own home, whether you're at work or wherever you are, you do know for a fact that there is a place called FemConnect that will make sure that they coordinate and they distribute and they bring your packages to your doorsteps, whether it's your monthly supplies or whether it's your patch or it's your pill or whatever. FemConnect was announced winner of the first ever Apps for Africa competition, an initiative of the Nubian Network, a digital business development agency for African entrepreneurs targeting African audiences. Director of Nubian Network, Candice Simone. We ran this competition to um, just gauge what the demand is for apps and get to know the entrepreneurs in the market who need apps. Um, and how the competition worked is that the finalists filled out a form, we selected the top 50, and each of them had to ask their audience to vote for them. Um, so they won because they had the highest number of votes um, at the closing time of the competition. Because we found a lot of entrepreneurs would approach us with the idea that an app is a business, which it's not. An app is a tool to leverage a kind of business idea you have. And we wanted this competition to be a way for the entrants to understand how to mobilize the community, an online community around your idea. That's why they have to vote for you. They have to understand your story, what your app means, what it does for the real community offline as well. Um, and Pinterest did that really well. She did quite good PR at Sonele, um, getting the message out there about her app. She really did use some social media tools as well, some promotions to get people to understand what app does. Um, and that's something any app entrepreneur or app business owner has to do, and that's something no one teaches you. Simone says Nubia Network will help bring the app to life and drive its launch into the market. So we'll work with FemConnect, taking them through the real process of making um, a good, successful app, um, doing some market testing, UX design, um, and then, of course, the back-end development of the app. We will launch the app on Google Play Store once it's complete. So it is a real-life app that we will build for her, and we'll take her through the full holistic process of, of developing an app. Godu is excited about the support from Nubia Network. Because they are an online business development platform, they help you as an entrepreneur with regards to business development, with regards to marketing. So they basically enable and empower you to bring your app to life. And one of the things that they said to us in the competition is that the competition was run in a way where we had to mobilize people to vote online for our app. 
and the public were the people that were voting for us. And the whole objective around that was to teach us as entrepreneurs that when you have an app, you don't just create an app and sit back. There are there are things that you have to do. There's marketing that you have to do. There's campaigning that you have to do. There's awareness that you need to do. There's education that you need to do so that people can buy in and understand this. And then people then will start voting for you. So we did that for a whole month and the competition ended on the 15th of July. And it was such intensive work because now you realize that the public starts engaging with you and say and ask questions like the ones that you're asking, but what is the difference between going to the clinic and buying my contraceptives through an app? Or what is the difference between an injection that I get at the clinic to a patch? And I started to realize that many people do not know of many self-administered contraceptive options that we have in South Africa. So there's a whole lot of awareness that went in and education that went in into the campaigning for the competition itself. So now Nubia then will put together a team as of the 1st of August, making sure that FemConnect does grow as an app and it, it reaches all the nine provinces in the way that we had initially planned it to. That's Asonele Kodu, Chief Executive and Founder of FemConnect, reporting for Channel Africa. I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. A traditional leader in the Kazungula district of Zambia has thanked Southern African development community leaders for the construction of Kazungula Bridge, uh, connecting Botswana as well as Zambia. The chieftainess uh, was speaking to Livingston-based journalists who were on a field trip to the bridge and other static projects in the area. Hilda Kakelo reports. Speaking to journalists, chieftainess Sikute of Kazungula said the completion of the bridge would transform the area from a village to a modern town. She said as it is now, business people are pushing in applications for plots for various operations, putting the chiefdom under pressure to release traditionally held land to government for development. As a chiefdom, we feel blessed because in Zambia, Sekute chiefdom is the only chiefdom where you find four countries meet and share the boundary, which is on the other side, there is Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, on the other side of the Zambezi is Zambia. So all these countries, they will benefit from once this bridge is complete. Chieftain Sikote said because of its location, the chiefdom feels if it were possible for Sadiq to consider putting up a large trade center where the four countries could trade from. She said traders from Zambia who mainly look for blankets and other household goods would need not go further into Botswana to Francistown or Haboroni, while those from Botswana would also find what they are looking for just by the border. She said this kind of arrangement will further enhance trade integration within the Saudi community, especially for the four countries. Also, as a chiefdom, what we can appeal to the Saudi region as a whole as a chiefdom, Sekute chiefdom. We're interested in opening a market here in Kazungula, where people from all these countries can bring goods for sale. Meanwhile, the Kazungula Bridge project is progressing well, with major works expected to be completed by December. Assistant Resident Engineer Joseph Nyerenda, who described the bridge as second to none in the region in terms of engineering works, said once complete, the time drivers spend at the border will significantly reduce. So this is very important, uh, the pipeline, which feeds all the economies of our neighbors. So this is a, a link to form part of the massive traffic flows which come from uh, Deben through here and also through Zim. So we actually are investing part of the portion which comes through Botswana 
and which also comes from Namibia, which will come through here. So in terms of trickle-down effects, we are hoping that when this is done, because at the moment it's a pontoon, and when that's done, it means that the, 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 the transportation we talked about, I should be able to move from gaps without the hindrance, because at the moment the, the pontoon is a hindrance, and then the, the 18 hours they knock off. At the moment we're having 200, 271 vehicles per day, which uses this. When this is done, we expect that the vehicles are actually going to increase much more than is, is the case. Um, at this point, we, we, we have people who, who come as drivers, and they get marooned here. And you know one of the baggages which is commonly carried around is HIV. So if they maroon here, then the likelihood of it actually being spread is actually high. But if the quicker we dispatch them, then that benefit actually helps. At the wellness clinic, another SADIC project, the journalists were informed that on average, the facility distributes more than 4,500 condoms per month. And that report was by Hilda Akekelwa. 17.45 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the money desk. Here's Tracy Boomgaard with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Kenya's finance minister and two other senior government officials surrendered to the police moments after the director of public prosecutions ordered their arrest. Minister Henry Rotich and 27 others are accused of flouting procurement procedures in awarding a contract worth over 450 million U.S. dollars for dam projects to Italian company CMC Ravina. Both Rotich and the company have denied wrongdoing. Sarah Kamani reports. Kenya's Director of Public Prosecutions, Nudin Haji, says the 28 accused persons face eight corruption-related charges. Rotich, his principal secretary, Dr. Kamau Thuge, and the Director of the National Environment Management Authority, Geoffrey Wahungu, presented themselves to the Director of Criminal Investigations. Immediately, Haji made the announcement. Haji says his office is also investigating how the tender was awarded for $170 million more than was in the original contract. Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta, has repeatedly vowed to fight corruption, but the courts have fallen short of convicting any senior government official. Zimbabwe's largest mobile operator, Econet, has threatened to take drastic measures if the rolling blackouts in the country are not resolved soon. The operator says the power cuts have left its operations unsustainable. The shortage of electricity in Zimbabwe has also crippled mines and factories while compounding the country's worst economic crisis in a decade. Ayanda Mkwanazi reports. Econet, which has 11 million subscribers, controls 99% of the mobile money transfer market and is relying on diesel generators. It says that if the current crisis continues, it would have to take drastic measures to ensure sustainable service. There has been speculation that mobile phone networks would consider switching off subscribers during power cuts to avoid rising costs that are not matched by the tariffs the industry currently charges. Econet voice tariffs have remained static while Zimbabwe's local currency has lost nearly 900% of its value against the US dollar and fuel prices have skyrocketed by more than 500% since the beginning of the year. Despite losing more than 300 million U.S. dollars in air and energy investment, South Africa's Public Investment Corporation says it still made very good investment decisions in some companies. PRC CEO Dan Machila says given the money the PRC made out of good investment decisions, it dwarfs some of their bad investment decisions. Machila was giving testimony at the Commission of Inquiry in Pretoria, the PRC invested $270 million U.S. million in Erin Energy when the company was raising funds through a secondary listing on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. The Cameroon Development Corporation, the country's second largest employer, says the three-year conflict has forced it to close farms and factories across Western English-speaking regions. The CDC runs banana, palm oil and rubber plantations. 
Moki Kinzeka filed this report. CDC General Manager Franklin Goninjie says more than half of his 20,000 workers fearing attacks refuse to work while the remainder work only part-time. We have virtually lost the banana plantations and we have to start with complete replanting. Revenue dropped to less than 50%. We were unable to meet up with our obligations to pay salaries and wages. We have been unable to meet up with our obligations to honor our social and fiscal commitment. Oil prices surged after Iran seized a British tanker in the Gulf and Libya stopped production at a key oil terminal on Friday. The seizures fueled fresh concerns about supplies and possible conflict in the crude-rich Middle East. Libya's national oil company announced earlier on Monday that it had resumed production at half capacity at the Sharara oil field. The shutdown caused a loss of about 290,000 barrels per day of production, worth an estimated 19 million U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollars trading at 358.20 Nigerian Naira, 10.41 Botswana Pula at 102.03 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.76 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.74 Brazilian Hale, 62.97 Russian Ruble, 68.73 Indian Rupee, 6.88 Chinese Wang, and at 13.90 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 79 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,426 and platinum at $844 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $63.34 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now it's time for us to cross on over to Neto Chimani at the Sports Desk for your latest sporting news. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with Netball News. The Portfolio Committee on Sports, Arts and Culture has urged sponsors to reward the South African Netball National Team following their performance at the 2019 World Cup. The chairperson of the committee, Beauty Lulani, encouraged corporates to play their part in helping netball reach its full potential in the country. The Proteus went down to Australia by two points in their semi-final clash while they lost their bronze medal match against England to finish fourth. Lulani added that a revenue generation model is required for the sustenance of excellence in the sport and that netball needed to feature on a free-to-air television frequently. The 2023 Netball World Cup, meanwhile, will be hosted in Cape Town, South Africa. In football news, the Football Kenya Federation President Nick Mwendwa has appointed a communication head Barry Odieno as the new CEO of the Federation on an interim basis to replace Robert Mutomi, who stepped aside following a fallout from the post John Avira transfer from Sofa Baka to an Egyptian site. Here is President Mwendwa explaining what has transpired. We want to maintain fairness for all parties involved the club, the player, and the CEO, so that we can allow the committee to do its work properly and thoroughly and make a report to us on how to move forward. In the meantime, the emergency committee of FKF sat yesterday and made a resolution that in the foregoing, Barry Otieno will act as CEO of FKF with full authority in that period of time while Robert is away and while the work is being done, so that FKF can continue to execute its mandate. 
Former South African national men's under-20 amateur captain Kulekani Kubeka is grateful for the opportunities he has received in football, starting from playing for the national under-17s and now being part of the squad which is going to play in the chef qualifiers starting from next Sunday's match against Lesotho at the Sitsoto Stadium in Maseru. Kubeka, who was spotted while playing at the Copa Coca-Cola tournament in 2014. Yeah, I think uh, Copa Coca-Cola is a great tournament for youngsters. You know, they help youngsters uh, get a, a platform to showcase their talent and they also develop great young men within the youngsters as individuals as well. So, you know, as one of the graduates from Copa Coca-Cola, I think I'd firstly like to thank them a lot for the opportunity that they gave me and for, for the young men that they molded me to be now. So, you know, having that platform to be able to play at Copa Coca-Cola has also opened doors for me in the national under 17, national under 20, national under 23 and I've also just been uh, given a call up to Bafana Bafana which is I think it all started way back in 2014, 2013 when Copa Coca-Cola gave me a platform to showcase my talent. And finally in tennis news. Upcoming South African tennis player Lloyd Harris has reached a career-high ATP ranking of 82. The 22-year-old moved up three rankings spots in the latest rankings released earlier today. His compatriot Kevin Anderson remains number 11 in the rankings led by Serbia's Novak Djokovic, while in the doubles South Africa's Raven Klassen is ranked at number 9. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Etio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that is how we wrap up the first hour of Africa Digest for today. Be sure to join us again a little bit later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time. But for now, from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For any comments on the show, you can send us an email on info at channelafrica.co.za or a WhatsApp on plus 27763003327 and you can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Uyaditanda by Zonke Digana. We'll see you again later. Baby, you is your name.